This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, I'm Anthony Fury. Thanks so much for joining us for the latest episode of Fullcom. Please consider subscribing if you haven't already. In July, the public got its first look at images released from the James Webb Space Telescope some of the most remarkable images of the broader universe that we have ever seen. Humbling is perhaps an understatement to explain what I certainly felt after viewing these images. And there will only be more to come, and what we learn from it may prove to be mind-boggling and game-changing. The James Webb Space Telescope is not some normal little backyard skywatcher. It is a massive piece of equipment that was launched into space this past December to pursue some extremely lofty goals, such as to search for light from the first stars and galaxies that formed in the universe after the Big Bang, to study galaxy formation, to understand star formation and planet formation, to study planetary systems and the origins of life. Wow, a little above my pay grade. Let's unpack all of that a bit. It's quite something. It is truly fascinating. Our guest joining us today is a professor of physics and astronomy who isn't just following what's going on with the telescope, but actually uses its images and engages with it. Professor Adam Musen is with York University. He joins us now. Hello, Professor. Great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. I mean, like I said, it's, it's really just a mind-blowing topic, but it's also uh, your daily job here. You know, I, I'm looking at your website, your bio at the York University site, and it says, my research focuses on galaxy formation and evolution, particularly the high redshift universe. And I thought, wow, my mind is already blown just by, just by reading a bio on your website. Yeah, well, the, I mean, you're right. This is what we do um, every day. And, uh, you know, trying to figure out where galaxies come from, um, you know, where our Milky Way comes from and, and ultimately why we're here. And uh, it's a real privilege to be able to do that. The James Webb Space Telescope, tell us its origins, how it came about and, and what it really does. What makes it so significant and different from its precursors? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, the project is actually very, very old. Um, the initial inception of James Webb goes back to 1997. Um, when, uh, you know, I, I was just out of high school um, and it took a long time to get to this point. Um, but basically the inception of the project was, um, you know, the Hubble Space Telescope was launched uh, in 1990 and then repaired in 1994. And astronomers, you know, were, were doing fabulous work with that. And of course, we asked what's next. And, 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 you know, the next thing to do was build a bigger and better and more powerful telescope. And it's taken a long um, time to get there. Um, but ultimately, we have gotten there almost 25 um, years after the initial inception of the program. And, uh, you know, your program is only so long, so I don't have time to go through all the ups and downs over, you know, two and a half decades that James Webb uh, went through from, you know, thinking that the, the mission would be launched in 2002. Ultimately, it was launched 20 years later. Uh, budget cuts, budget expansion. I mean, right. so many different things happened to the program over 25 years. Um, but ultimately, you know, here we are um, with this new telescope. Um, and you asked me, you know, why is it better? Um, it's better in so many different ways. <clears throat> and in many ways, it's also complementary. But ultimately, the thing that makes it so much more powerful is that 
the way telescopes work is we reflect light off a primary mirror. And the more light you can collect, um, the more faint objects you can see. And so the James Webb Space Telescope uh, has a mirror that is six and a half meters across, um, whereas the Hubble Space Telescope has a mirror that's only two and a half meters across. Um, so it's almost triple the size. And of course, in collecting area, you square that, so it's about nine times bigger in terms of collecting area. So it's like having 10 Hubble Space Telescopes effectively, uh, which makes it able to see objects that are much fainter than anything we've ever seen with Hubble. So things like very distant galaxies. Um, but the other key ingredient to it is that it is optimized to observe light in the infrared. Um, and your eyes observe light that is what we call in the optical part of the spectrum. Um, but you can go beyond that into the infrared, and that's very important for all sorts of um, astrophysical processes. For galaxies that are very far away, uh, there's a process called redshift, which maybe we can talk about, but the light is shifted to, to uh, the red, and we need to see those, we need to observe in the red. Also for studying things like star formation, uh, a lot of that process is hidden behind dust, and the light that you and I see gets obscured, but infrared light gets through. So. James Webb allows us to see things much fainter than we've seen before. It allows us to see things in the infrared that we have never seen before. And then ultimately with a bigger mirror, you also get finer details of uh, what we call higher angular resolution, or you, know, you can see much finer details than Hubble. So in so many ways, it surpasses um, what the Hubble Space Telescope is able to do. So I know it was launched in December. Where is it right now? And, and what does it kind of physically do? Like, is it trying to sit in one place or is it just kind of drifting all around? Absolutely. So it goes out um, past the moon's orbit. So it's sitting sort of in a line between the Earth and the moon and the sun. And this is a point called L2, uh, where the gravity of, of the moon and the Earth and the sun all cancel. And it's sort of this little anti-gravity place that we like to, um, you know, put uh, satellites so that they can maneuver around very easily. So it sits there in this orbit out past the moon. Uh, and it keeps its, it has, you know, if people, if your, your listeners have, have seen pictures of it, it has this gigantic sun shield, which it always keeps facing the sun. And effectively, you know, it, it, it is in an orbit like the Earth, uh, going around the sun, keeping its sun shield to the back of the sun. And you can move the telescope um, in different directions in order to view different parts of the night sky. Wow. And I understand that you you interact with this telescope and that you have like a, a time allotment for it. Like how does that work? Or, or do people kind of use it like one would a computer interface? Do you get to like move around where it's looking? <laughs> I wish, yeah, that there was a joystick, right? That I, could I have no clue. Maybe there was, I don't know, yeah, <laughs> I don't no, know how no, this no. thing works. <laughs> I wish there was one. I think that would be a lot of fun. Um, so, so the way it works is, um, so, I'm on several different teams, including um, some, some teams that I lead that have been given um, access to observing with the telescope. But the way that works is um, the telescope is controlled by the Space Telescope Science Institute in uh, Baltimore. And uh, what we do as scientists is we say, look, we want to look at this object. We want to use this camera. We want to you know, expose for a certain amount of time. And <clears throat> we send the, those requests to them. You know, They've been approved. And then it is operators at the Space Telescope Institute that ultimately execute the commands to the telescope. And there is unfortunately no joystick. It's really, you know, pre-programmed commands that cause the telescope to move and the cameras to, you know, open the shutter and, and take pictures. So uh, unfortunately, I don't have that level of control, but I would, I would love to. <laughs> I know a lot of basic questions that regular folks are going to have from all of this in terms of what will we find. Can the telescope tell us, will it potentially tell us 
that there is life on other other planets, other galaxies, or that there was life? Will it be addressing those questions potentially? Absolutely. Um, so you know, we can't say for sure if James Webb um, will give us a definitive answer about life on other worlds. Um, but one of the things it is optimized to do is to study the atmospheres of planets around other stars. And, and these are uh, often called exoplanets. And so we can uh, do a process called spectroscopy, which is taking light and dispersing that light into a spectrum, kind of like what you get when you put light through a prism and you see a rainbow. And different chemical elements display different signatures in spectroscopy. And so one of the things we can do is by studying the atmospheres of planets around other stars is understand what those look like. You know, is there water on those planets? And ultimately, you know, in a perfect world, um, if you wanted to look for signatures of life, the thing you would potentially look for is, you know, an abundance of oxygen, um, which is, you know, oxygen is a very, very unstable element. It loves to bind to things. And the only way that it's in the atmosphere of planets is if it's constantly created. Here on Earth, it's constantly created by um, plants, right, which sadly we're killing. Um, but um, if we were to see a signature like that, you know, water and oxygen in the atmosphere of a planet around another star, um, that would be great hope that there was potentially life on that planet. Um, and so we may find that with James Webb, which is extremely exciting. But we'd have, we have not done that yet, <laughs> of course. When you talk about understanding galaxy formation, would this be seeing uh, sort of signs of how things happened or, or would it be actively watching other things happen sort of as they unfold super far away? Yeah, exactly. Well, so, you know, things move very slowly in the universe. Um, for example, if, you know, we live in this Milky Way galaxy and it rotates, it's this beautiful disk galaxy, um, but it takes about 200 million years for a single rotation of the Milky Way. So if you wanted to watch just one rotation of the Milky Way, you'd have to live a very, very long life. So when we study galaxy formation, we can't really watch the process itself going on for a single galaxy because the timescales are, are too long. Um, but one of the, the, the thing that the James Webb telescope is so powerful for is, and, and this is a phenomenon that maybe some of your listeners are familiar with, it takes, light travels at a finite speed. So if something is one light year away from you, it takes a year for that light to get from that object, you know, for you to see it. And what that means is you're effectively viewing that object, what it looked like a year in the past. And if something is two light years away, you're observing it as if it was two years in the past. And so if you scale this up to the, the you know, the distances that galaxies are, we're looking at galaxies now that are potentially, you know, so far away that the light has been traveling basically since the beginning of the universe, or at least since, you know, those galaxies formed up to 13 and a half to, you know, almost 14 billion uh, years in the past. And so by looking at these very, very distant galaxies, which James Webb is completely optimized to do, we're able to see the past, the very, very distant past. And we're able to see what galaxies looked like in the very, very distant past. And we can look at them in the very distant past, you know, the middle past, more nearby galaxies, and try to connect the dots in what, you know, is the lifetime of a galaxy, you know, the life cycle of a galaxy, how galaxies begin and, you know, live their life. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do with James Webb. Those very, very early stages uh, of galaxy formation, which we've never seen before, we know are critical. And, 
And we're really un, you know, able to unlock those with James Webb. We'll be back with more full comment in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Professor, when we talk about the James Webb Telescope being able to help us figure out the origins of life, how does it do that? <laughs> That's a uh, hard question in, in many different ways. Um, we talked earlier in the thing about looking specifically for um, you know, life on other worlds, and that's one thing you can do. Um, but one of the things you really need in order to have life, and, and you know, it's, it's everywhere here on Earth, is the complex elements, right? Uh, things like carbon, um, things like oxygen, right? Life, as you know, most creatures on Earth are made of, of water, you know, highly of water, and water is H2O, so it has, you know, oxygen in it. And so we need to understand where those chemical elements came from. Um, right after the Big Bang, there was nothing like that. The only thing, we, we know this um, to be true, that the only elements in the universe uh, that existed after the Big Bang were hydrogen and helium, which are very, very simple elements, and they're not really the building blocks of life. You need all these other things. And we know um, from many years of study that all of the more complex chemistry that makes up life um, comes from the insides of stars, that stars fuse hydrogen and helium into things like carbon and oxygen and nitrogen and ultimately die and expel those. And so one of the things the telescope is optimized to study is, you know, star formation and um, star death. And in fact, one of the early pictures of, from the telescope was of a, of a dying star, one of these planetary nebula. So we want to understand where this complex chemistry comes from and, you know, studying all these different aspects of star formation and star death. And the chemistry of that is exactly what the telescope does. And that can help us better understand, you know, why the Earth has the, the chemicals uh, enrichment it does in order to support life. One thing I, I often wonder about some of these ideas, theories that we have about all of these big questions is I know Sometimes our perceptions change. When I was a kid, Pluto was a planet. You'd list off the planets. I guess now my children at school, they're not taught Pluto is a planet. Pluto has a different <laughs> classification. Are there any things right now that are, that are kind of potentially in flux or in the mix when you go out and look at the possibilities with the James Webb telescope? Ah, uh, that, yeah, that's a, um, that's a good question. I mean, you know, my own interest is, um, is in galaxies. And I think, um, you know, in terms of that, uh, there's so many questions in terms of, you know, what do the early stages of galaxies look like? And I'll, I'll try to not get too technical, um, but it kind of relates back to what I was saying is that in the very early universe, there was no complex chemistry. Hmm. Um, and so the very, very first generation of stars to form had nothing but hydrogen and helium. And we don't really know what those objects what those very first stars would have looked like. We know that they would have ultimately created, you know, things like nitrogen and oxygen, and they would have exploded into supernovas. And all the subsequent generations of stars would have had those things like our own sun. Um, and 
one of the things that's really interesting about um, these stars and the technical name for them is they're called population three stars is that some people predict that they can be hundreds and hundreds of times more massive than our sun, um, which is many times bigger than the most massive stars that we've ever seen um, anywhere in the universe. Um, and some theories predict that, no, they won't be that. They won't be, you know, so much different than, you know, the kind of stars that we see in our own Milky Way. And we really don't know because we've never seen one before. Um, and that's really uh, a lofty goal for the James Willis Webb Telescope is to find a galaxy so far in the past that it actually contains the very first generation of stars, which will really help us understand, you know, are these things the massive monsters that some theories predict, or are they more normal like stars that we see now? Um, and that's something I really love to know the answer to. What is the life cycle of this telescope? How long is it going to be up there providing uh, this information, and is there already a, a sibling or a, or, a, or a child of this telescope being created that I know you talked about how the previous one was much, was much smaller in the mirror, you know, going further and further? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, the nominal mission um, for James Webb, uh, as specified by NASA, is a five-year mission. Um, and <clears throat> if it achieves that goal, it, it will be deemed a great success. Um, you know, the way NASA defines missions is to have a nominal goal, um, but often things surpass the nominal goal. And so the hope is that the telescope um, would be doing this for up to 10 years without any problems. However, um, the launch of the telescope was so successful um, that a lot of the, um, you know, uh, fuel uh, needed to move the telescope around was actually con was conserved, uh, putting in it in orbit. So. Um, there is, in principle, the possibility of operating, at least at the moment, James Webb for up to 20 years, um, which would be a massive surpassing of the nominal lifetime of, um, of five years. But, you know, we have to wait and see. And, um, you know, one of the things that you have to always be careful about is, you know, things go wrong in space and um, they can't be fixed. And so, you know, <laughs> although we're hoping for, you know, five, 10 or 20 years of James Webb, um, we know that it can also end tomorrow. And so we, we you know, are, are very thankful with every precious moment we get with the telescope. Yeah, this is not a thing that you can just go up and fix. It's not like it's just a little little spacewalk outside of the International Space Station or anything like <laughs> Absolutely. that. Absolutely. It's well past the moon. Um, in terms of successors, I mean, of course, us astronomers are always looking to build the next great thing. Um, there's nothing that um, is super far along, but people are discussing the possibility of a telescope that has a primary mirror that is um, up to, uh, uh, sorry, I think it's 15 meters in diameter. So it would be triple the size of James Webb, um, which James Webb itself was about triple the size of Hubble. Um, and that would open up all sorts of uh, possibilities. This telescope is called uh, Louvoir, at least at the moment, although telescopes, uh, you know, these early, early stages of planning things, often the names of things can change. Um, so we are considering this, um, but it's it's in very, very early stages of uh, of planning. Professor, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about how the planning for all of this and the, the budget and the execution, they're inherently, I guess, government decisions, which I guess inherently are some way uh, political decisions. And, you know, whenever we have these conversations, like primarily on, on, on this podcast, we end up talking about news issues that are very, well, very small compared to talking about how is a galaxy formed? And I always find it, again, so so humbling, as I said in the introduction, 
to talk about these issues. You know, we spend our day just like looking at our Twitter or, you know, doing our, our very sort of small insular things. And then, wow, you know, this is such a, <laughs> the most broad topic of all. How should we conceptualize these issues? Because of course we hear, well, there's funding cuts, so we can't do this thing. We push this back. This is not a priority for us because sure, this isn't about putting food on the table, but then when we talk about the questions that that we're, we're seeking here, the questions we're seeking to answer, it's also in some sense, the the most important project. How should we align our priorities with these ventures? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's something I get asked a lot, right? Is, um, you know, the, the, the price tag of the telescope is very famous. It's $11 billion with a B. Uh, that's very, very expensive. And, and you know, how do you justify um, spending that much money on something like this when, as you point out, you know, people have trouble eating, people have trouble um, paying for their house. Um, and it is difficult, but, you know, science is, is really a key part, I think, of, of being human. And, you know, studying these things is a lofty goal. We train many, many um, students using what we learn from this. And on top of that, you know, we develop a lot of technology that is used in, in all sorts of um, items uh, that end up in your everyday life, right? So much of NASA technology has ended up in, in various things. You know, from the telescope, all sorts of the um, the optics stuff has ended up in optimizing um, optical things for uh, for medical processes, etc. Um, and so, you know, it kind of, <laughs> although it all, it, you know, it is a lot of money. You realize that something like the telescope touches so many different aspects of society. It touches society um, from a technical standpoint. Um, it touches society from an educational standpoint, right? So many students uh, study astronomy as part of their uh, university or, you know, or, or, or elementary school studies. And then ultimately, you know, it, it, it feeds our imagination, as you say, you know, beyond Twitter is it, it, it opens us up as, as humans to, you know, much loftier ideas. And so, although it's very um, expensive, it, it contributes, I think, so much to, to society that it is um, money well spent. On a similar note, when it comes to the spacefaring projects that we embark on, I know whenever there's an anniversary of, of say, the moon landing or similar missions, these days people go, oh, I kind of thought we'd have a greater frequency of that, but that's just, you know, kind of come to a stop. So we have this telescope where, wow, we're seeing more than we've ever seen before. It's so amazing. But then, as you pointed out, we can't even go up and fix the thing if it, if it gets broken. And I remember movies, you know, in the 90s or year 2000, a Mission to Mars movie would come out and like a regular person would think, yeah, we're going to land on Mars in, I don't know, 20 years, 25 years. Okay, well, we're 20 years later and we ain't we ain't putting a person on Mars anytime mm -hmm. soon. There's there's an interesting, there's progress on some fronts, but then not on others. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And, and you know, one of the things that prompted me to become an astronomer is just excitement. Uh, you know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s when, you know, the shuttle was at its prime and, and we had so many missions out there. Um, you know, ultimately, I think it is a it is a budgetary issue, and um, you know, it is expensive to, for example, send people to Mars, um, and so um, it has been hard. Um, and a lot of the money, you know, for NASA in recent years has gone into the International Space Station. But I think you will see that you know things are changing because one, and, and I'm sure if you talk about current events on, on your podcast, you've talked about um, you know. Uh, things like uh, Blue Origin and, right. uh, you know, Virgin Galactic, as well as, of course, the incredible amount of satellites there being launched by um, SpaceX. And so there has been a bit of a commercialization of space now. 
And, you know, that is, you know, putting more money into this. And, you know, you know, we are actually, um, if you follow it, NASA is planning on going back to the moon and ultimately Mars. Um, and this is a mission called Artemis, uh, ultimately to go to the moon in the next year or two, which um, has not always gotten the most amount of attention. Um, but there is plans for, it's been scrubbed a few times, but there is plans for a launch in the next few months of the first Artemis mission, which will send an unmanned capsule past the moon and then have it land again on Earth in preparation for sending astronauts back to the moon, which I believe the expectation is the next year or two that will happen. So um, things are really picking up back again in space. There was a bit of a lull there, but I think over the next 10 or 20 years, you're going to see a lot more of, you know, uh, manned missions in space. Yeah, it's interesting to your point that, okay, NASA is getting back to it, which is very exciting, but then maybe the greatest excitement comes from these billionaires who are doing it for whatever reason. There's obviously a personal, uh, you know, <laughs> personal victory in it, but then also, well, you know, I've already got these billions. What else crazy thing can I do? Or just genuine, <laughs> I appreciate that Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are, are very entrepreneurial, you know, doing really incredible things, people. So I think they're thinking to this for earnest reasons as well are are you are you optimistic that this competitive environment among these mega billionaires is is going to yield more positive things for space exploration yes i mean I, I think it is and i and i think it is a positive thing um you know to have the the private sector in there um you know <laughs> to go a bit sideways i think the real the real challenge we have is that right now um you know the the laws that cover uh, space are not very um, well, there aren't many and, and they're not enforced in any way. And so I think, you know, one of the things that's, you know, if, if people are interested in, in, you know, missions in orbit around earth is we know there's a ton of space garbage out there. Um, and there's really nothing that stops you from, from, uh, you know, dropping space garbage. I think, you know, in fact, a, a piece of a SpaceX rocket landed somewhere on earth uh, even last week. Um, and so I think it is great and it is going to yield great things, um, but we do need to, you know, regulate space. And that's something that if we don't do, I think starting soon, um, there may be negative consequences of just too much of a rush to space without making wise governing decisions. What is the international body that, that is currently tasked with doing that or, or would be, or is there not one? Um, there is one and I forget the name of it, but the problem is, is that, um, you know, like so many international agreements, like with the United Nations, you know, International Criminal Court, nothing is binding, right, of course. Right. And so, um, you know, I forget the name of the organization now, but they do set best practices, mm. but nothing enforces you to uh, employ those best practices, unfortunately. Well, well, I remember reading that the Elon Musk launch was actually against the law by some US law. I, I can't remember which one it was. And some department said, you know, you can't go ahead with this. And I guess his response was, well, I don't know, what are you gonna stop me? And it went ahead anyway. So I guess there's a bit of uh, these guys pushing the boundaries. You know, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and um, I, you know, I can tell you as an astronomer, I'm, I'm a fan of Elon Musk's in some ways, but I'm also, uh, you know, concerned because one of the things uh, that is going on is uh, the massive Starlink project to to put thousands of satellites to give internet to everybody on Earth, which sounds like a great idea. Right. Um, it's actually really negative for astronomers because these satellites um, traverse the night sky in these gigantic constellations and um, cause you know major problems to all of our images. The night sky right. is going to be filled with thousands and thousands of these satellites, and 
Um, you know, astronomers are very concerned about this, and there is nothing we can do uh, to stop to stop him, right? There's no law, there's no way of doing this other than, you know, many people in the astronomical community have written Elon Musk letters saying, please don't do this. Um, and then this is why I think, you know, better regulation of space um, is a good thing so that, you know, everybody's voice can be heard in terms of doing the best thing for... Does he write back to those letters? Has he said anything? Um, you know, they have, and they've, they've taken notice. One of the things they've agreed to do is um, change some of the orbits and some of the reflectivity. Hmm. Um, some of the earlier versions were very reflective of sunlight, which makes them very bright. Um, you can paint them black, <laughs> which makes them reflect less sunlight, um, which helps us. Um, and so he has listened, um, but he certainly hasn't said, no, I'm not going to do it. And I think, you know, for us in the astronomical community, um, you know, that's something we would, the many of us would prefer. Um, but, you know, there's no real way of doing this, right? There's no formal way. And I think um, that would be a real positive. So I think commercialization of space is great. I think it adds a lot. But I think just like commercial, you know, just as we're learning about all sorts of things like Facebook, you know, social media is great, but, you know, completely unregulated, um, it can have problems, right? Professor Musen, I've learned so much about the James Webb Space Telescope, of course, but also about all these other issues that we've covered here. This has been a, a really exciting conversation, and I thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. All the best. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru, with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.